That was a short segment from the 1993 film Matthew, which presents the full NIV text of the Gospel of Matthew in dramatized form, starring uh, Bruce Marciano as Jesus of Nazareth. Um, The full movie is four hours long, uh, but I've got to say I just love it. I just love to watch it at Easter time. So I guess I have to find four hours sometime in the next little while. It's good to watch at Easter. Um, As we consider today the parable of the unforgiving servant, I think you might find it handy to have your pew Bible open at page 799, Matthew chapter 18. But I wanted to to, to start with that video segment for several reasons. I hope you didn't find... Christ's Californian accent, or Peter's South African accent, (laughs) too much of a distraction. One reason why I wanted to start with that video is that we get an insight into what a compelling drama the parable is. I mean, it's a great play. It could be expanded upon, I reckon, into a full-length feature film. There's drama and pathos and, and, and mercy and grace and justice and judgment. Another reason why I wanted to start with the video is that we get to see visually a couple of things about the context of the parable. Things that are in the text, but we, get, we saw them visually in the, in the film. Um, but actually, going back to the start of chapter 18, what is happening? Well, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, and it's an upside-down kingdom. Who is the greatest? The one with zero status. And what does it mean to lead? It means to care for, rather than despise, the least and the lost. And then comes a discussion about kingdom discipline. What do you do if a brother or sister sins? Well, Jesus gives his disciples a stepwise program for dealing with sin. Go and point out their fault, just the two of you. If that doesn't work, take one or two others along with you. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the whole congregation. And if they're still unmoved, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, actually, today's not the day to go into what he might have meant by that, but the video points out beautifully, I think, um, points out in showing Jesus playfully jump on and wrestle to the ground young Matthew, um, it, the video points out that actually whatever Jesus meant, there's already a tax collector in their midst. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, the author of the gospel in your hands, he's already in their midst. Um, the, 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 the parable comes out of a discussion then about church discipline, a discussion in verses 18 to 20, and a discussion which includes some extraordinary proclamations. The the congregation has the authority of Christ and the presence of Christ. Whatever is bound is bound. Whatever is loosed is loosed. Whatever is agreed on will be done by our Father in heaven. For wherever Two or three gather in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There I am, says Jesus. That's extraordinary. The, the, the film then shows us correctly Jesus coming, sorry, Peter coming to Jesus by himself. This is a private conversation between Peter and Jesus. And I think it's good to register that. 
Why would Peter wait? Why would Peter wait until he's able to talk to Jesus privately? Why would he wait for a private moment in order to ask his question, which is, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who who sins against me? Up to seven times? Well, why, why would he choose a private moment? Well, what I'm about to say is purely speculative, but... My speculation is that, well, look, look, in the last two chapters, three times Peter has boldly spoken up in front of or on behalf of the other disciples, and it hasn't always gone well. Twice he must have thought, gee, if I'd only just kept my big mouth shut. The first time Peter spoke up, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 13, it was going well. Jesus asked his disciples who the people thought he was, who they thought he was. And various answers come forward. But Peter spoke up and he gave the correct answer. Lord, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds with an extraordinary affirmation. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not re- revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And in that sentence, the pronoun you is singular. Jesus is talking to Peter about Peter. Jesus has just made him the leader. And given him extraordinary authority. His authority. Not long after that, Peter again speaks up in front of the other disciples, rebuking Jesus now for saying that that, that he's going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. Christ responds, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And Wow, what, what an extraordinary rebuke. How incredibly strong. Well, Peter is still learning that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. To be great is to be the servant. If you want to be rich, then give everything away. And to be the least is to be the greatest. Not long after that, Peter speaks up again. This time, chapter 17, verse 4, Peter is responding to the transfiguration and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the response from God is, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, what Peter said was silly. Uh, He was gushing. Gushing in the presence of greatness. I do that all the time. Uh, It's really embarrassing. What he said was embarrassing. What he said was also religious, as though we can bring something to the party. Be, be, Be quiet, Peter, and listen to Jesus. Well, Jesus is learning to listen first, then think, and only after that speak. Something I'm planning on learning along the way as well. It's hard, though. Um, What we see now, Peter coming in humility, asking privately, no doubt wanting not to make a fool of himself again, 
and yet also showing, he shows us that he trusts Jesus completely. He trusts Jesus even with his foolish questions. And in fact, his question is not foolish. No genuine question ever is. Peter, as the Christ-ordained leader of this fledgling community, it is extremely important for him to know the answer to this question. When do you stop forgiving? It's actually a really good question. King David, a thousand years before, was an amazingly forgiving king. But his son Solomon, when he became king after him, he began his reign by putting to death three of the many people his father had forgiven. Three in particular, including one was his own brother, Adonijah. And in context, that shows us the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon was eliminating opposition in order that his kingdom might be secure, in order that the people of God might have stability. But should Peter be this? Should Peter do likewise? Should he take vengeance in the name of the Lord, particularly when somebody sins against the Christ-ordained leadership of the church? Is, Is this kingdom wisdom? To what degree should a leader tolerate disobedience, rebellion, being undermined, backstabbed? How many times, if this happens, how many times should you allow a person a second chance? Well, Jesus Jesus answers Peter's question and then he teaches a parable. The answer is straightforward. The parable explains why that answer is important. The answer to Peter's question is straightforward and this is it. I tell you, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, you just keep on forgiving. This is what you're to do. You are just to keep on forgiving. The kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. Instead of revenge, there is forgiveness. Instead of rejection, there is grace. And actually, there's no limit on grace. You just keep on forgiving. Then, after the answer is given, comes a parable which explains why that is so. And why it is important. It is a parable. It is not an allegory. The king doesn't stand for God, nor does the servant stand for Peter or for a Christian. Rather, this is not an allegory. It is an analogy, a story designed to provoke comparison. As an analogy, as we've been seeing in this series on parables, as an analogy, it has tenor, a vehicle, and one or more points of similarity. Let's begin with the tenor or theme. There we go, next slide. There we are, that's great. Tenor, what is the tenor or the theme of the parable? We know what the tenor is, it's forgiveness. This is a parable about forgiveness. To expand upon that, this is a parable about forgiveness, grace and responsibility. Now, with respect to forgiveness, we need to ask a simple question, and that is, what is forgiveness? Because actually, it's a really difficult thing. We all know it, we all instinctively get it, but it's a really difficult thing to define. And why I think it's important for us to actually give a definition of forgiveness is that for about a century now we've been psychologizing the term. When we hear the word, what comes to mind is things like putting the wrong thing in the past and letting go of the offense in order to restore relationship with the offender. And when we do this, when we define forgiveness in these terms, we instinctively tie forgiveness to our emotions, to our feelings. And forgiveness becomes something in which we choose to stop hurting and to let the anger go. But what if we find we can't stop hurting? And what if we find that we're still angry? 
Well, we figure out that either we haven't forgiven or that we can't forgive. When forgiveness is seen in such terms, the phrase forgive yourself means something. And that is a phrase that we all use sometimes. Have you forgiven yourself? When you forgive yourself, you stop blaming yourself. You stop condemning yourself. You stop feeling angry towards yourself. And that's not wrong in itself, but it's not what the Bible is talking about. The question, have you forgiven yourself, which makes sense to us, would have been deeply confusing to the people who wrote the Bible. What do you mean, forgive yourself? Just as it is impossible to owe yourself money, so it is impossible to need to forgive yourself. That's a nonsense phrase from a biblical perspective because forgiveness in the Bible is not about feelings but rather about legal indebtedness. And this is particularly apparent in our parable today. In Hebrew thought, to sin against someone was to incur a debt. When someone sins against us, they take away from us in one form or another, leaving a debt, and in doing so, they leave us in a place where we can demand repayment in kind. Biblically speaking then, forgiveness is laying down our legal right to repayment in kind. This is not the only definition of forgiveness, but it is close enough to be a good working definition of what the Bible means when it talks about forgiveness. So that's the tenor of this parable. This is a parable about forgiveness, about when we do or don't lay down our legal right to repayment in kind. Thirdly, what is the vehicle of the parable? Well, um, we know what the vehicle is. The vehicle is a story about a king who wants to settle his accounts. One of the first people brought in is a servant who owed him ten, what, what appears in our NIV 2011 translation as 10,000 bags of gold. Um, we heard uh, on Christ's lips the older NIV translated it as 10,000 talents which is what it is in the Greek. A talent is not a unit of currency. A talent is a weight, and it's roughly 34 kilograms. So this man owes 340 metric tons of something. It could be either silver or gold. The Pew Bible goes with gold just to emphasize the fact that this is a wildly, wildly impossible debt. In today's terms, it's $13.5 billion. But in Christ's day, not even Caesar was that rich. I mean, this is just a la-la figure, an impossible amount. The man, therefore, owes a debt that is completely and totally impossible to repay. No one could ever repay that kind of debt. It would be too ridiculous to imagine so. Given that the man cannot repay, the king orders that... The man and his wife and his children and everything he owns be sold so as to repay the debt. And culturally, this is how bad debts were handled in the ancient Near East and all around the Mediterranean world. If you couldn't repay, you sold yourself or you were sold into slavery. In response to the order, the servant begs on his knees for mercy. He doesn't ask, interestingly, he doesn't ask to be forgiven the debt, to be released from it, but rather he asks for time, time to repay. But the king, knowing he won't ever be able to repay, and also taking pity on him, cancels the entire debt. With respect to how the rest of the story unfolds, 
we just need to know a couple of additional things. This servant who goes out having been freed of his debt, he is owed money by another servant. And that turns out to be 100 silver coins, or as it is in the Greek, 100 denarii. And as is often stated, and you probably will have heard before, a denarii was the daily wage of a day laborer. In other words, minimum wage. This fellow servant owed, therefore, in today's terms, in the order of $13,500. In today's terms, as in Christ's day, that's a significant debt. It's not nothing. $13,500 is, you know, you don't want to just forget that. But it's not meaningless. But by the same token, it's, it's manageable. It could be repaid by this other servant. It's a manageable debt. By way of comparison, a slave sold in the marketplace for between 500 and 2,000 denarii. So if we imagine this poor guy who owes 100 denarii, if he sold himself in the slave market, he'd probably get 1,000 denarii. So it's a manageable debt. Second thing we probably need to look at is uh, verse 34. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. One of the ways in which a debt could be repaid was by throwing the debtor into a debtor's jail. The torture, uh, I imagine, I'm not sure if this is right, but um, um, we imagine nowadays that the torture was hard labor. The point of this verse, though, is that the man is never getting out. This is not a debt that anyone could ever repay. So that's the vehicle. We we know the story. We know... uh, We know the story. What are the points of similarity? What does this parable teach us about forgiveness, grace, and responsibility? Well, Jesus himself gives us the answer. Um, He shows us that there is a direct link between the king's judgment on the unforgiving servant and God's judgment on an unforgiving disciple. Let's look again at verses 32 and 33. Then the master called in the servant. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The question is rhetorical, but in the Greek it is worded much more strongly than can be easily translated into English. It is along the lines of, it was necessary, yes, it was necessary for you to show mercy to your fellow servant even as I had mercy on you. Therefore, we have multiple points of similarity. Firstly, as sinners, we owe God a debt we can't repay. No ransom is ever enough. The wages of sin is death. I can't repay God for my sin because if I did, I would cease to exist, making repayment a futile exercise since I wanted to free myself from obligation. Secondly, like the servant, we're forgiven. We've been forgiven a debt we could never repay. That's wonderful. As Christians, we know this is true because of the cross. We know the mechanism by which God demonstrated his forgiveness. God himself, through Jesus his son, took our punishment in his body, on the cross, in his death. We're forgiven. Thirdly, just like the servant In the parable, though, even though 
we've been forgiven our debt. We've been forgiven our transgressions. People are indebted to us. We're both borrowers and lenders. Some, someone, we're people who, to whom others owe because others have sinned against us. And others most assuredly have sinned against us. We all know what that's like. All of us have been sinned against. So, fourthly, the king's words hit home to us too. It is necessary, yes, it is necessary for you to show mercy to your fellow creatures just as I had mercy on you. And lastly, Jesus is clear that there are consequences for failure to respond to God's grace with grace. Plainly, Just as the king handed over the unmerciful servant to be tortured forever, so too the unforgiving sinner is unforgiven and therefore cannot hope to escape the fires of hell, the eternal fire prepared in advance for the devil and his angels. God will not extend mercy to those who are not merciful. Therefore, Jesus' answer to Peter's question was twofold. Firstly, forgive and keep on forgiving. Secondly, It is necessary for you to do so because you are forgiven and you keep on being forgiven. Well, Peter did incredibly well to ask this really important question. The kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. The hallmark is forgiveness, not revenge. Yes, the church is a place of discipline, But it is also a place of limitless grace. This is a very clear parable. It's not difficult to understand. We may yet still have a couple of questions. Uh, I have anticipated two questions which I'd like to just treat very briefly. One is a practical question. What if I can't forgive? The other is a theological question. Is unforgiveness unforgivable the first question first pastorally it is very common to hear people say that they either haven't or can't forgive someone the plain truth is that we can always forgive anyone for anything immediately that's the plain truth we can always forgive anyone for anything immediately we all struggle with this truth One of the reasons why we struggle with this truth is that we've psychologized forgiveness. We've made it about feelings. Uh, As we often feel and say that we can't forgive someone, what we mean is that, that really we're so overwhelmed by pain and anger that we can't stop or control these emotions. And when we find that we can't stop or control these emotions, we figure that therefore we can't forgive. The answer is to understand that forgiveness primarily is to lay down our legal right to repayment in kind. Forgiveness doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. And forgiveness doesn't mean that I'm no longer angry or in pain. Forgiveness means that I'm not going to do to you what you did to me. Nor indeed extract repayment or revenge by one mechanism or another. Forgiveness, then, is a decision of the will that can be taken without reference to one's emotions. Jesus says that we must forgive our brother and sister from the heart. Now, the heart is not the seat of the emotions. 
rather the seat of the emotions is the bowels. The heart is the seat of the will. That's where we, we make a decision overruling our emotions if we have to. And we're all used to that. When we forgive, we can say out loud or in our hearts, freely and in the name of Jesus, I forgive this person as a decision of my will. Now, you might be exceedingly angry when you pray those words. And you might remain angry for years. But we will start to heal once forgiveness is invoked. For sure, if you don't forgive... That anger will stay with you forever, fresh as a daisy, you with your anger. And that'll be real cozy and nice if you decide that anger is your best friend. But healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, physical healing, comes after forgiveness, not before. Another reason why people might balk at the demand to forgive is that we closely tie forgiveness with reconciliation. And that's entirely reasonable because we usually forgive someone for the purpose of being reconciled. God has forgiven us in order that we might be reconciled. But reconciliation and forgiveness are actually not the same thing and occasionally we need to untie them. It can be helpful to know this. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. We might have to forgive someone from our heart who has already died. We might have to forgive someone who doesn't want anything to do with us. We might have to forgive someone who, and perhaps it was because they committed a crime against us, we didn't know before the crime, and it wouldn't be appropriate for us to know them after the crime. So we can forgive them, but there's no reconciliation because there doesn't need to be. And we might choose to forgive someone, perhaps a close relative, but refuse to be reconciled to them because it is no longer appropriate to ever trust that person again. Where a power differential has been seriously abused, forgiveness does not have to include putting the perpetrator back into a position of power. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. It can be helpful to know that. But speaking pastorally, unforgiveness is very common, but exceedingly dangerous. Just as Jesus' words in this parable make plain. Unforgiveness is extremely dangerous to our welfare. Unforgiveness leads to spiritual, emotional, and physical sickness. If, if you are this morning, if you are aware of a situation in your life where you are knowingly withholding forgiveness, then you should seek help with that situation as a matter of urgency. Likewise, all of us from time to time should submit ourselves to an audit and ask the Holy Spirit to show us if there is any unforgiveness in our hearts. That leads us to our theological question. Is unforgiveness an unforgivable sin? Someone might say, this parable teaches that anything and everything can be forgiven, but it also teaches that unforgiveness will not be forgiven. Both those things cannot be true. So which is it? Well, actually, ultimately, it's a nonsense question. It's a little bit like asking, 
Can God make a rock that he can't lift? If he can't make a God that he can't lift, then he can't be all-powerful, can he? But if he can make a rock that he can't lift, then he can't be all-powerful, can he? The question is designed to show that God cannot be all-powerful. But in actual fact, it's a nonsense question containing an incoherent task description. God is all-powerful, by the way, just in case you're concerned. Um, to receive forgiveness but not, but not be willing to pass it on is to not really have, forgi- not really to have received it at all. Um, the person who has truly experienced grace instinctively offers it to others. The person who has experienced the love of God and his holiness with fear and trembling says confidently, forgive us our sins, knowing that God is forgiving. And so he's also able to say in the next breath, as we forgive those who sin against us. In conclusion, we can approach Jesus with our silly questions. He is loving and kind. Yes, the church is a place of discipline where sin is challenged, but in the context of unlimited grace. The forgiven person forgives others. If we accept God's forgiveness but withhold it from others, we have broken the terms of our covenant. This is the church. Jesus is with us. Forgiveness are us. The Lord be with you.